All right, good morning. Welcome back. Thanks for coming. Uh, Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. God, we thank you that you are the God who knows our needs before we have them. And so, God, we ask that you'll help us this morning. I pray that you'll encourage us as we look together both at your word and just in terms of what we have here. God, I pray for those who are walking through dark times that you will help them find their hope in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a reminder kind of where we've been and where we're headed. So we laid the foundation from Isaiah 43, which is that difficult times come to everyone, but that when those times comes, God will be with us. When you walk through the water, I will be with you, God says. And so everyone finds those times, but God also promises that he will be with us during those times. Then we spent a little while defining depression. And we said, uh, we spent some time defining terms, but depression is essentially, it fits under a category of suffering. Scripture doesn't have a lot to say about uh, depression specifically, but it has a ton to say about uh, suffering generally. And so the ultimate cause of suffering is sin, whereas the immediate cause is complex. And then last week, we began looking at how it is that we diagnose fear, anxiety, and depression. And we ended by looking at kind of different triggers that maybe uh, would start an episode of depression or a prolonged experience of that. And we're going to uh, pick up right here in terms of diagnosing fear, anxiety, and depression and kind of build on what we looked at last week. So this is really kind of a continuation of our time together last week. And so as we do this, I want us to consider some cultural conditions that uh, lead to depression. We live in a day where our standard of living is higher than it's ever been, and yet where more people struggle with depression than have ever struggled with it. Uh, Depression today is much more prevalent than it's been in the past. So if you were born after 1950, which not everyone in here was, but some were, you are therefore 20 times more likely to experience depression than if you were born before 1910. So if you're born after 1950, you're 20 times more likely to experience depression than those born before 1910. Now, I'd venture to say there's no one born before 1910 present this morning, uh, but I won't, but I won't you know, promise that. And so, so the point is that, as uh, I'll say, as, as comfort in our standard of living has improved, so has our struggle with depression. I'm going to uh, read a statement here, and I'm going to read it because uh, it's controversial enough that I want to appeal to someone kind of higher than myself. And so this is from Ed Welch, his book on depression. It says, the most popular theory of depression today is the biochemical hypothesis. Which suggests, which suggests that depression is a consequence of serotonin deficiencies in the brain. No one, however, has succeeded in squaring this genetic hypothesis with the dramatic increase in the rate of depression. Instead, the best explanations point to some kind of cultural changes that have been shaped by us and seek to shape us in return. So if you didn't, if you didn't follow all that, because it's you know, kind of a paragraph there and a little bit long, that the most common contemporary hypothesis about why people experience depression has to do with chemical imbalances, biochemical serotonin. And he's not really saying whether that's true or not. He is, however, saying that can't by itself explain the steep increase in depression. So there must be other factors in play causing that. It's, it's not like suddenly like, oh, now we have a lot more of this chemical than people did 50 years ago. Something, something has changed, and so what is it that's changed? There must be some other explanation for this. So, without really seeking to prove or disprove that, because I'm not medically or psychologically uh, qualified to do that, 
what are some cultural conditions then that might lead to an increase like this? Are there other factors that lead to an increase in depression? Uh, one is a belief that we deserve to be happy. So we're told from the time that we're very young children that you can dream anything that you want, you can be anything you want to be, and that happiness is the greatest end in life. Uh, in fact, at some level, constitutionally in America, we're at least we're not guaranteed happiness, but we're guaranteed that we can chase after it, right? We can pursue happiness. So you're told this, you know, for, uh, for 16, 17, 18 years, you can be anything you can dream, you can be anything you want to be, and then you graduate from high school, and you realize that that's not true. And suddenly, people are saying, you're not as awesome, you know, as you've been told your whole life, and you realize that the world around you isn't constructed to make you happy. In many ways, it's, it's a grind. It's, it's difficult. So dreams are good, but at some point, you have to grow up and realize there's a real world out there, and i got to learn how to deal with it. And so there's this belief, and then there's kind of, I'll, I'll say, reality, and sometimes there's a gap between what we dream and what we actually experience. Uh, another thing that we experience today is an infrequency of dealing with tragedy. So this is actually, this is, this is a positive thing, that you don't deal with tragedy as much, but it also has some, some side effects. Uh, so in his book, The Reformation of Suffering, Ronald Rittgers notes that in medieval Europe, one out of five infants died before they were one year old, and half of all children died before they were ten. So you take half the children in our church, 10 years old, and they're statistics. They're not people at that point. And where was it that, that in this age that people died? When, when these children died, did they die in a hospital? They died in some sort of home? No, they died at home. And so those parents buried half of their children at home while they were still little. So grief, tragedy, suffering is just a part of everyone's life. It's, like you're, it's, it's not a surprise, it's just a regular part of life. And yet, in spite of all of this tragedy, this grief that they experienced, it's shocking to us today to see how people 1,500 years ago faced tragedy and death more fearlessly than we do today. They exp encountered a ton of tragedy and yet didn't fear it as much as we do. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, <laughs> says how the average medieval person who looks at our life today would be shocked that people today would struggle with suffering because they wouldn't conceive of our life as suffering at all because it would seem so remarkably easy to them. And so, he's, and so there's some level, you know, the kind of this disconnect. We experience much better lives, and yet we also emotionally are in a much more difficult spot. So the reality is that we have less to be depressed about than any culture in history, and yet statistically we struggle with depression more than other cultures. And part of the consequence of that is that we deal with tragedy less, and therefore we are less equipped to deal with tragedy. It's sort of like, uh, you know, you do the same thing over and over again, and you, you kind of get equipped to deal with that. Well, we deal with it less, and so we are less equipped to deal with it. Another thing that can contribute to this struggle of depression is what we might call bad theology, and they're kind of uh, two subcategories here we'll, we'll talk about, inaccurate view of self and an inaccurate view of God. So at the end of the day, we believe we deserve better than we've actually received. So in our minds, we might know that, you know, we're sinners and we deserve hell. Yet each of us knows in the back of our minds, okay, God didn't design the world this way. And so we're troubled by an experience that, that hurts. God didn't design the world this way, and yet we experience pain and heartache. 
There's a part of that that's good because in recognizing that there's something wrong with experiencing pain, we're recognizing God's good design in creation. So we're recognizing something that's true about the world. And yet, we're also recognizing that things are broken, things need to be fixed, and we deal with this. And then our view of God or our view of ourselves in light of God's word isn't strong enough to help us kind of calibrate our thinking in difficult times. And, uh, and so how do we see this? Well, we hand out participation ribbons, right? Everyone gets a ribbon or, or trophies for everyone. I can remember the, the first time our daughter played soccer and she got, she got a, a trophy. And she was so excited it was her first trophy. Well, the next season she got a trophy and she's like, yeah, well, everyone gets one of those. I mean, it took, her, it took her one season to figure out everyone gets a trophy, and the trophy didn't mean anything to her anymore. It wasn't for winning anything, uh, and it was just something. Uh, so people struggle with critical feedback. Uh, we don't like being told no. Uh, so they say that uh, 1,500 years ago, if you struggled in your job performance, you didn't get a bad performance review. You starved to death. So, I mean, the consequences for failure were significant. So we're not as well equipped to deal with hardship. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, In the modern Western view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. So what he's saying is that we view life as good, and that suffering is the interruption. Whereas 1,500 years ago, you just experienced it as a part of life. It wasn't an interruption to life. It was part of life's story. It was what everyone expected. We've grown to where we aren't accustomed to this, or we don't expect it, and so we encounter it differently. And so one reason that depression is on the rise is that we're unequipped and unprepared to deal with the reality of the harshness of living in a fallen world. So we can make life more comfortable, we can improve a standard of living, but it still doesn't change the fact that life is broken, that we're in a broken world, and that we're still going to experience the consequences of that brokenness uh, in our lives. So having considered kind of these cultural conditions, let's look at some, kind of some um, categories for cause, causes of depression. And there are three main categories that we're going to look at. Uh, internal causes, external causes, and undetectable causes. So some internal causes of depression. So each of us has a set of beliefs or a wiring that informs the way we interpret life. Uh, sometimes those beliefs are really obvious and sometimes they're subconscious. Sometimes they're um, th- something that we see and something that, sometimes things that we don't see. So Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. And so there's something inside us that comes outside. So our words and our emotions reveal our hearts. And so often in depression, there are things going on inside and they're kind of bubbling out into the effect of a depression. At the same time, there are also external causes. So uh, sometimes events from the outside can surprise us. We don't see kind of anxiety creeping up on us and then it surprises. We have a devastating encounter and suddenly we can't function emotionally, spiritually, um, or even physically. But sometimes outside causes aren't surprising. Sometimes they're very predictable, but that doesn't mean you can do anything about them. Knowing that it's coming doesn't mean necessarily that it will go away. It just means you know it's coming, which is almost maybe worse than not knowing it's coming. For instance, uh, some kinds of weather, weather may make you anxious, or some kinds of smells or certain, certain environments make you anxious, and you know it's there, but that knowledge doesn't allow you to avoid depression. So in other words, 
if, if you get really sad on cloudy days, that doesn't make you unsad on cloudy days because you know you're going to get sad on a cloudy day. It just means you know you're going to be sad tomorrow because it's going to be cloudy. And that may not be good news. Or your spouse's anger may drive you to clinical anxiety. But that doesn't mean that knowing that stops it from happening. It just means that you know there's a cause and an effect. The anger still happens. Uh, there are some causes of depression that are undetectable. Uh, sometimes depression will happen and we don't know why. And that's almost the hardest kind because you just feel a certain way and then it happens. It doesn't mean that we don't know the specific cause or specific symptoms. Rather, we just don't know why we feel the way we do. We know we feel that way, but we don't know why we feel that way. And feeling that way without knowing why can be the most discouraging part of feeling that way. Most often, depression, though, comes from a, co a combination of causes, internal, external causes. But at the center of our response to depression is our view of God. Zach Eswine, in his book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, which I gave out at the beginning, uh, takes from Spurgeon's work and he says this, at its core, spiritual depression concerns real or imagined desertions by God. In other words, we feel abandoned by God in the midst of our circumstances. We feel in our senses that he is angry with us or we have done something to forfeit his love. Or he has toyed with us and left us on a whim. Either way, he exists for others but not for us. He punishes us with silent treatment. He laughs at our pain when he gossips to others about us. And so at some level... If we view God as a good, sovereign, heavenly Father who cares for his children, who looks on us with compassion, it makes all of the difference. Well, this leads to a question, um, and it's a difficult question. It's a complex question to explore, and it's this. Is depression sin? And this is difficult because the answer is no. The answer is yes. The answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. And so this can make it a little bit difficult uh, to explore. Depression can be caused by sin, and sometimes depression can cause us to sin. So we lash out or we sin because we are depressed, but depression is not inherently sinful. So in other words, to be depressed is not inherently a sinful feeling. Well, let's, uh, let's think about it this way. If I asked you this morning, so we ask, you know, is depression sin? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Is eating sin? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? That fourth cookie, that might be getting there, right? Yeah, the chocolate. Uh, for cheesecake, it's easy for me to say no, but fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, you got me there. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm running after those. Is drinking sin? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And, and, and so there's this, there's this experience. So that means that that thing, so I'll say this, is eating something inherently sinful? No, it's not. There can be a sinful way to express that, a sinful way to live that out, you can do that by eating too much or not eating. I mean, you can sit on either side. You can be anorexic or you can be a glutton. It does, I mean, you can go either way. There's a, there's a sinful way to experience that. And the same thing is true of depression. Is depression inherently sinful? No, it is not. Now, I will say this one thing that's different is eating is something, I mean, maybe you hate yourself afterward, but often the experience of it you enjoy. Maybe that's why you do it. You might self-loathe afterward, but in that moment, you enjoy it. Now, depression is it's a series of, of lies that we believe that also make us, make us believe often that what we're experiencing is sinful or that there must be something wrong with us that is causing us to experience this. So where do we see 
uh, sinful depression in Scripture? Well, one place is in the book of Jonah. So Jonah is a preacher. Jonah goes into a city and he preaches and the entire city responds to his message and he says, repent, and they all repent and he rejoices, right? No, that's not how Jonah responds. Let's read it here. Uh, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. So the preacher goes in and he says, look, God's going to judge if you don't stop. If they stop, God says, okay, great. I'm going to show them mercy. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. This is a really, really good thing, and Jonah is angry about it. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? I mean, the thing that made Jonah angry was God's love and compassion. That's the opposite of our response to that. Jonah, he's, he's sinning big time. He's, he's a sinful preacher, honestly, is what he is. So then Jonah decides to pout about it. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he again asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, Jonah has issues. He said this twice. Once because he's, you know, he's getting a little heat stroke here, and once because God spared the people of the city. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That's a reference to children. It's a big city. There are 120,000 kids in this city. Jonah was more angry over his personal comfort he, he pitied himself more than he pitied the plant. So Jonah is an example, a clear example of sinful depression. He was depressed because God didn't wipe out a bunch of people. That's the opposite of righteous uh, indignation. So then how can we know that depression isn't sinful by definition? Well, one difficult thing about this is that we all battle our sin nature in life's experiences. So you remember at the beginning we talked about the flow of life toward pride or toward fear. Well, we're going to experience good sides of that and and negative effects of that. And so at some level, we're all going to battle uh, sin. So you might feel good today. Well, that might be because you're proud. It might be just because you're happy in Jesus, you know. And and so at some level, there's going to be experience, a, a, a battle for sin in all of us. But we know that depression isn't inherently sinful because of what we see in the life of Christ. So in Matthew chapter 26 Jesus is facing the cross, and he goes with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes there to pray. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking him with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sounds like depression, doesn't it? Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Now, note there's some similar language here to Jonah. What did Jonah want to do? Die. Here, his grief is so great. 
It's like to the point of death. Verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face praying and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Now imagine, you are depressed. You're about to die to bear the sin of the world on your shoulders. And you got a few friends there with you, with you in the trenches. They're battling and they're asleep. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So now let's compare this to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer of the Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, so what is more depressing? than being betrayed by one of your closest friends and facing the prospect of God's judgment, not against your sin, but against everyone else's sin. It's an unrighteous judgment from a personal experience. Jesus bore our sins, not his own sin. He's going to be judged by God for sin. It is perfectly reasonable for Jesus to be depressed here, to be what he says is sorrowful to the point of death. Yet in all of this, Hebrews tells us he never sinned. Is Jesus tempted to sin in the midst of his depression? Well, I think Hebrews 4 would tell us, yes, he is. But he did not sin. Depression can be caused by sin, can lead us to sin, but it is not sinful. It's a consequence of living in a fallen world, and it can accompany life's most difficult moments. So sometimes you can be surrounded by a difficult experience caused by brokenness and yet not sin at the same time depression can be sinful and be caused by sin because sometimes depression is caused by sin and sometimes it's not it's very difficult to diagnose it's also difficult to have this conversation with a depressed person because depression is so closely connected to shame now shame and depression they're like you know twins they go hand in hand and so sometimes we experience depression, but sometimes we experience shame that's from depression. Now, we talked about fear and pride. Now, pride might be explosive, but you probably won't crush a proud person by telling him that he's proud, because he's proud. But someone who's struggling with shame, that person can be crushed. And so this is, is very, very difficult. So how do we think about depression and shame? Depression loves shame. That doesn't mean that you love it. Depression loves it. This feeling of hopelessness or a feeling of emotional darkness is often connected to a complete absence of self-worth. We have a standard and we constantly fail to measure up to it. And then that person, that, that person needs help, but they're ashamed, and then you try to help them and they feel more shame because they need help. I mean, it literally, it's, it's like the proverbial camel. This person goes through life they are carrying a ton of bricks on their back. And you offer to help them, and they lash out. Why? Because you drop a straw on the camel's back. And, and, and is anything wrong with that straw? No. 
this person is carrying this load of, of darkness and shame, and, and it emotionally, they're, they're broken like the camel. It's what depression uh, can be like, and it's one of the reasons that helping a depressed person can be difficult. Because if they're struggling with shame and weakness, and then, you, and then they need help, the offer to help, what? Exposes their fear, their, their shame. And this is because shame feeds depression. So depression loves shame, and then shame feeds back into depression. So it's, not, it's often not that the person doesn't know that they have a problem. They may even know what to do. However, they just cannot bring themselves to do it. And that's the most defeating thing of all. And so attempts to help ironically feed the problem. So it's like they need help worse than anything, but attempts to help make the problem worse. Man, there's a, there's a dilemma because they need help, and yet getting help makes it worse because of this connection to shame. So you're on the outside, and you're looking at this person doing stupid things, and it seems like a very reasonable thing to say, just stop it. It feels very easy to do, and in ordinary circumstances, that's an easy thing to stop. But for this person in that moment, they cannot do that. I just thought of this as not even my note. Have you ever seen the uh, old Bar- Bob Newhart um, sketch where he's sitting across the desk from someone, and he's, he's a counselor, and uh, this lady comes, and she's, like, struggling. He's like, stop it! And, that, like, that's his counsel. Just stop it! That's the ca- and sometimes we, that's, like, how we want to counsel people, you know? It's like, would you just stop that? But that doesn't work. So that person in that moment, stopping is an overwhelming burden. So when you're dealing with a depressed person, kind of the goal is to try to speak truth to that person in a way that doesn't heap shame on that person in that moment. That's a difficult, tricky thing to do. You want to give hope, and you want to speak truth, but not pile on shame. And so one of the best ways to do this is to learn to empathize, not merely to sympathize. This is difficult. What's the problem? Okay, so sympathy is feeling something on beha- like towards someone. Empathy is feeling it with someone. And so it's, it's coming and it's putting yourself in their shoes. So you see someone hurt and you sympathize for that person. When you feel hurt with that person, you empathize with that person. Now, it's difficult because you're not experiencing the same emotions or the same feelings, and so you can't at one level truly empathize but you can learn to empathize. Or you, sometimes I'll say, look, I don't understand, but I want to understand. I don't feel, but I want to feel. I, I, I want to walk through this with you. And so rather than uh, kind of the, the image of someone falling down and you pulling them up, it's like you getting down and helping each other up and finding a way to kind of walk into that circumstance with uh, that person. And certainly not to patronize that person. Not like, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, it'll all be okay. Because it's like, no, it's not, and you don't know, and that makes it worse. Well, part of the difficulty with this, especially if we struggle with depression, is that we are our own worst accusers. So we don't believe the best of ourselves. You're such a loser. Other people don't struggle like this. If you were, if you, you, know, if, if you were better, this wouldn't happen to you. So then often, when we struggle with this, we often accuse others of bad motives or unloving tactics when they try to help us. They may be doing their, their best to help, but because we accuse ourselves, we also accuse them. We accuse them of shaming us. When they're not shaming us, they're helping us. But because we experience shame, that's, that's not a them problem, that's a me problem, but it's hard to admit in that moment. And this complexity, this complexity is, is difficult. 
So as, po- as impossible as it may feel in the moment, we have to work hard, even when we're ex- the ones experiencing depression, to extend grace to the people helping us. Now look, we're broken, and we know it. That person's broken too, only they may not know it. <laughs> but but uh, they may know it, but their attempts to help will be broken just like our experience right now is broken. So just be thankful if someone cares enough to try and help, even if it's not very good help. It may feel like, you know, your kid's helping you in the kitchen or helping you fix the lawnmower. It's, it's not help. It's, it's just like they're getting in the way, but sometimes it's just nice to have someone there getting in the way. So depression and shame go hand in hand, and this makes uh, diagnosing and talking about depression tricky. Ed Welch, in his book on depression, outlines five types of guilt. And he says there are a number of reasons why we can feel guilty. One, sometimes we feel guilty because we should feel guilty. I mean, like you sin, you ought to feel guilty. You break the law, you ought to, you ought to fear you know, being guilty. It's like, it's like cruising down the interstate, you know, and it's a 70 and you're, you're not paying attention and you're like 82 and you look down and you see an officer and what do you do? That, that's guilt. And, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a feeling that you ought to feel right then. So we love sin more than God, and often we plan to keep on sinning. And sometimes we excuse our sin by saying, I'm only human, you know, humans mess up, I mess up. And so we, we kind of rationalize our sin. But sometimes we feel guilty because we ought to feel guilty. It's like the kid, you know, with his hand in the cookie jar, and mom walks into the room. That's guilt that he should feel right then. Sometimes we feel guilty because we don't confess our sin to God. So God calls all of us, uh, to confess our sin. And First John 1, 9 says, if we do, he will forgive our sin. David in Psalm 32 writes, I acknowledge my sin to you. You did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sometimes we, we carry our guilt because we haven't taken care of it with the Lord. We haven't taken our sin before the Lord. God promises that he will forgive and cleanse us, but sometimes we don't uh, respond to it that way. Uh, sometimes we might feel guilty because there are consequences to past sin. Uh, so, for instance, you drive under the influence, you injure someone, maybe even someone that you love. You know, you bear the, the, the kind of legal consequences for that, but, but now there's a visible reminder of, of this sin. Or maybe you uh, were an uh, angry, abusive parent, your kids are old now. They want nothing to do with you. You know Jesus, but you experience still the consequences of that broken relationship. I shared a few weeks ago the story of my, uh, my maternal grandfather who grew up. His dad was a drunk. He was for most of his life, and he was saved in his 70s. Well, some of his adult kids responded well to new dad, and some of the kids didn't respond well to new dad. That doesn't, that doesn't mean like God hasn't changed his heart. It just means that there are consequences for decades of, of sinful abuse in his relationship with his, his children and their adults, and some of them didn't want relationships with, with, with dad because of that sin. And so there are consequences to past sin. Um, and so it's maybe, maybe not guilt before God, but it might be more appropriate to call this sadness uh, because of sin. Another thing that we can experience is something that feels like guilt, but what we are really feeling... <laughs> is a sense of uncleanness because we've been victimized by someone else. Uh, sometimes we just feel dirty because we're dirty, and it's a little bit difficult to distinguish between um, 
an unclean feeling we experience because of something we've done, and sometimes uh, we feel unclean because of something that someone has done to us. Uh, so, pr for instance, we've gone through some, some form of uh, emotional, verbal, or even uh, sexual abuse, and because of that, we, just, we carry this feeling of uncleanness around with us all the time. Uh, a fifth way that we feel guilty is that we feel guilty because we think we have to do something uh, to be forgiven. And he says this last type of guilt is especially relevant to depression. And so it's sort of um, like trying, attempting to pay off a debt that you can't pay. And so with these five types of guilt, uh, so is guilt like an honest feeling or a dishonest feeling? It, well, it's both. That's difficult. Sometimes it's telling you the truth and sometimes it's telling you a lie. So if, if you sin and you feel conviction for that sin, that's, that's sort of honest guilt, you would say, or like it's guilt that you should feel. But there's other types of guilt you shouldn't feel. And so it's sometimes difficult, and especially because depression feels a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, it's difficult sometimes to distinguish both. So it's sort of like, is eating sin? Maybe, maybe not. Is depression sin? Maybe, maybe not. Is guilt telling you something true? Maybe, maybe not. Well, this means we need wisdom in, in working through this. And I want to talk particularly how it is uh, that a Christian should work through this, and particularly uh, how it is that we deal with shame and the gospel. And I want to talk uh, a little bit between the difference between the way someone who understands the gospel, and by this, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying this makes you a Christian or not a Christian. I just, I'll say practically understands the gospel on a daily basis, as in there are ways we apply it to our lives um, in terms of growing in Christ that are helpful in ways that are not. So sinful shame says that we must do something to cleanse ourselves to be forgiven. So that's the idea that, okay, I've done X, and now I have to work this hard to make it up to myself or make it up to God. That is against the flow of the gospel. Now, in saying that you experience that kind of shame, I mean, you may or may not know Jesus, but this isn't a sign that you don't know him. It's just a sign that practically in your life in this way, you're not applying the gospel to your life today. The gospel, though, says that Jesus bore our shame in that because he bore our shame, there is nothing we can do to make ourselves more acceptable.